I can touch, and it's a pretty good feeling. Yeah, it feels pretty good. I get a lot of Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. And as always, you can find all the music from my episodes on the TMAP B-Sides playlist here on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. The song on today's show is Stay Positive by The Hold Steady from their 2008 album of the same name. And on that note, I hope you're all staying positive and healthy through this global situation with COVID-19. We're living through a challenging and uncertain time, and honestly, it's a little scary. So if this podcast can be a distraction, a source of entertainment or whatever for you during the coronavirus pandemic, I'm thankful for that, and I'm glad to be a part of your day. Couldn't do this without your support as listeners, so thank you very much for taking the time to listen. Uh, anyway, let's get to fantasy football. On today's program, I'll be joined by George Kritikos to talk Dynasty. We'll open up with some discussion of the free agency period's impact on a handful of notable NFL veterans. Then we'll dive into this year's rookie class. George will relay his top 12 rookies overall. We'll talk about other risers and fallers coming out of the combine at running back and wide receiver. Then the show will close with the check-in on key rookies at quarterback and tight end. So without further ado, let's welcome in George Kritikos of 444.com. You can find him on Twitter at RotoHack. George, it's great to get you on, and I'm excited to talk some Dynasty with you. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Honestly, it's it's exciting to talk to anybody right now, given kind of, you know, everything going on with the world and the the isolation, I think, that most people are probably feeling a little bit. So I'm super excited to do this, and hopefully everyone's excited to hear a conversation between two people, which may not be super common for everyone right now. Yeah, my dog is probably getting sick of me talking to her at this point, so it's, it's good <laughs> to be talking to another human being, that's for sure. That's right. Uh, So let's dive into some general dynasty talk. I want to talk first about free agency and the impacts that we're seeing from all these moves on the dynasty landscape. And let's start with this, specifically in terms of long-term outlooks for players. Which veterans do you think have seen the biggest changes in value as a result of all the free agency action so far? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a lot of good ones. You know, a couple that that pop out to me, one real obvious one has to be David Njoku. I think the signing of Austin Hooper is a pretty clear signal that they, I don't want to say they're quite ready to move on. I think they're going to give them a chance to kind of at least earn some playing time. They don't have that third receiver right now, but it's clearly a sign that they don't see him as the answer that maybe they thought he was even a year ago. Uh, So that's definitely a big one. I think the news today with Nick Foles being traded to the Bears that makes Mitch Trubisky a big loser in this scenario. I think he expected some competition, but with Foles' contract, with the fourth-round pick they gave up, I feel like Foles has to be the favorite there to win that job. And obviously Nagy's experience with Foles in the past and some of the other people on the coaching staff certainly doesn't help Trubisky either. Uh, and then I'd point out Hayden Hurst would be another one, a little weirder, right? But he actually gained a lot of value with the move to the Falcons. I think clear replacement for, for Austin Hooper. They made the trade for him. They gave up some some pretty decent capital. I mean, they gave up a second rounder, part of a bigger package, but but they gave up some some pretty significant capital for a guy who uh, isn't young, you know, played minor league baseball, all that, and really fell behind Mark Andrews last year. But I think they're going to give him a real shot. I think they see it as a, a cheap option for a couple of years. I think he has two years left on his deal, plus an option for another year for that fifth year uh, since he was a first rounder, uh, you know, beyond that, obviously there's some other guys like David Johnson and, and Kenyon Drake as well, since, since his path is cleared up now with Johnson gone. Um, but, but I do think there were some, some significant positives and negatives from free agency already just in the first few days. 
Yeah, I like the Hayden Hurst call because that is a little more under the radar, but they really don't have anybody else in that Atlanta tight end depth chart. It's Jaden Graham, it's Carson Meyer. So from what we saw with Hurst towards the end of the year in Baltimore, just kind of over the whole course of the season in 2019 with the Ravens, he did get better from what he was the year prior. And I think that that matters. I think that the Falcons saw that they did a pretty good job developing Hooper. Let's keep our fingers crossed that they can develop Hayden Hurst in a similar fashion. I want to get back to the Bears, though. What do you think the potential move or the inferred move from Trubisky to Foles does for the weapons in that offense? Are there any veterans there at running back, wide receiver, tight end that you're going to bump up or bump down based upon the move from Trubisky to Foles? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's mostly minor changes. I don't think it'll be significant changes. Uh, Allen Robinson obviously is getting a ton of targets already, so I think his status largely remains the same. I think it's more the secondary weapons who could see a bit of a positive bump. Anthony Miller had some good games there in the second half of the year. Uh, he could be a guy that gets more consistent targets, especially if they don't find that good slot receiver of Taylor Gabriel, uh, you know, struggles with health or other things again. And then I think in terms of, of the running back position, you know, Tariq Cohen uh, probably won't see much of a bump up or down. I know that he kind of had a great first season, struggled a bit last season. I think he's probably going to fall somewhere in between. I would like to see David Montgomery get some more targets. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that happens in the offense. And then the signing of Jimmy Graham obviously plays into it as well. You know, does he become that next uh, tight end option for the Bears or is there not much left in the tank? So that's, that's a big question. I think that's where maybe Foles could be the make or break is how does he respond to Jimmy Graham and, and, and that experience because he has shown success in the past with some good tight ends. Along the same sort of lines, what do you think about Philip Rivers and his impact on the Colts? I've seen a lot of people on Twitter draw a through line from how Rivers played with Austin Eckler to how Rivers might be able to play with Naheem Hines. Maybe Paris Campbell takes a step forward. What do you see out of those offensive weapons with, in theory, or at least in the abstract, a, a quote-unquote better quarterback in Rivers under center? Yeah, I mean, I think at the very least, Rivers is going to take the chances that Jacoby Brissett just isn't wired to do. Uh, he's not that type of quarterback. He's not going to take the big risks. So that's certainly going to help a guy like T.Y. Hilton. Uh, I do think that Rivers is great in the short field, and he, and he showed that again last year with, obviously, Keenan Allen, with with Austin Eckler, and it could potentially help Hines. The one concern I have is do they draft a running back? Do they still believe in Marlon Mack or not? If they do believe in him, then then that does open up Hines to still maintain the pass catching duties. But if they get a more well-rounded back, they may see less of a need to use Hines in as many situations. And then obviously Jack Doyle has some opportunity because we've seen what Rivers can do with tight ends in the past. And uh, until they kind of get that weapon and maybe Paris Campbell is that weapon, but we just don't know yet. And it'll be interesting to see if he can develop into a really, really, really poor man's Keenan Allen uh, for for Philip Rivers, because right now we just honestly don't know what, what we have there. And, and he's still honestly learning the position as well. It, it definitely was a much different experience for him at Ohio State than what they're going to expect from him in the NFL. Another player who seemed to take some strides in 2019 learning his position was Blake Jarwin. And the listeners are probably getting sick of hearing me talk about this guy. I think I bring him up every podcast. But now that Jason Witten is officially out of Dallas, I think that Blake Jarwin's stock goes way up. And hopefully it's still going to fly a little bit under the radar because Amari Cooper did resign with Dallas. Looking at how their defense has been a little decimated over the free agency period makes me think that Dallas is going to have to throw a little bit more in this upcoming season. Where do you think Jarwin belongs in our tight end rankings going forward? 
Yeah, I, I was kind of playing around with my rankings with uh, a lot of the early news, and I've been updating as, as some of the more recent uh, news has flown in. I think right now I have Jarwin right around the tight end 25, 26 range, uh, which may be a touch low. Honestly, I'm a little skeptical in terms of what the Cowboys do at that wide receiver three position. There are rumors with Emmanuel Sanders. There have been rumors uh, that they were looking for another potential weapon, whether that was through free agency or the draft. So that'll be an interesting component to see. But right now, I agree with you. I think between the defense having some struggles, add on the removal of Witten to someone like Jarwin, who is a better athlete, at least at this point, it'll be interesting to see how he progresses as a receiver. Uh, but but I do think there's some optimism to be had there. And the tight end position is is sorely in need of, of some immediate contributors because it does fall off a cliff pretty quickly in terms of uh, short term production. Yeah, I also forgot to mention that Randall Cobb is no longer in Dallas either. So there are some more targets opening up there for Jarwin. I just I love the way that he flashes athleticism last year. And it's maybe it was just in stark contrast to the lack of athleticism that Witten had, but he's a player I'm very intrigued by and I've been drafting him in best balls. I think he's a, a buy in dynasty for what it's worth, even though I'm not a huge dynasty guy, but I, I would put him in that sort of criteria. The last guy I want to ask you about is Nick Chubb and you had him ranked eighth overall in your post combine top 200 for dynasty. I'm sure with all this free agency news, you have a bunch of updates coming and I'm curious if you're going to update your Chubb ranking now that the Browns have tendered Kareem Hunt I assume that Chubb is going to fall down a little bit, but I also would understand if you already had the expectation of Hunt returning factored into your Chubb ranking. Uh, what's your status there? Yeah, I mean, I didn't knock him any further down in terms of the positional rankings. I do believe that that where he is right now is uh, I have him at it as the running back six, and that's kind of where I'm going to keep him because, to your point, I was assuming that Kareem Hunt was going to come back, uh, and, and there hasn't really been anything else to me that would indicate that next season would be for him any much different than, than the previous season. And I think most dynasty and, and redraft owners are happy to take that for the most part. So for me, he's still a late first round pick. I, I think he's still a guy that you can feel confident in taking and, and know that there's actually upward trajectory for him. So uh, for me, there's no reason to really push him down because I don't think Many people were assuming that that Kareem Hunt would be gone. Now, a year from now, could he be uh, into the top five, top four, even top three conversation? I think that's entirely possible. So there is even movement upwards, potentially. Yeah, that long-term outlook is probably what needs to keep him planted near the top of our dynasty rankings. But I think for 2020, in a vacuum, this is a bit of a ding on Chubb. There was some hope that maybe Hunt would leave. Uh, I mean, it wasn't expected, but I don't know. I, I am pushing Chubb down a little bit in my rankings for this season. We've talked a lot to this point about situations that have been cleared up, you know, positions that have been filled for certain teams. Let's talk now about some teams that still have some holes. Which rosters do you think still have those voids that we might expect to be filled by rookies from this year's NFL draft? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some ones that we knew coming in that still are holes. Uh, I, I mean, I think the, the Chargers QB situation is a good example. We weren't sure if someone like Tom Brady or uh, uh, Jameis Winston, who could potentially still sign there. But as of right now, I feel like that uh, is looking like they're going to look towards the NFL draft. Uh, I think Winston's probably the only remaining option that they may consider. But I don't know if uh, if the price matches kind of what they're thinking. Uh, I think the Packers wide receiver position is one that a lot of people have been within NFL mock drafts mocking 
uh, wide receiver there in the first round. I think that's probably still the case, whether that's a Jalen Rager or somebody else. The Atlanta running back position obviously got a lot more interesting with the release of Devonta Freeman. Uh, I think that's just going to make that. And then combine that, honestly, with the signing or re-signing of Damian Williams to Kansas City. And I have to think that Atlanta now looks like the most, the combination of the most interesting from a talent perspective and combine that with opportunity right away for a rookie running back to walk into. Um, so those three to me still stand out pretty significantly as big opportunities and someone, whether it's short term or even maybe it takes a year, uh, are places where someone could really thrive. I'm glad that you brought up Damian Williams. This isn't super dynasty centric, but he has got to be one of the most undervalued guys in best ball drafts right now to me. And that could change if they draft another running back. But I am really excited for him at the price that he's going at. It seems like he should be back to, you know, the hype levels we had him at in 2019, you know, maybe late second, early third, middle third, but you can get him easily in that range, sometimes in the third or fourth, maybe even fifth round in best balls. But uh, I'm getting off track here. I just, I, I'm excited about Damian Williams. I, I think that the Patriots are probably the biggest overall question mark for me because you mentioned the QB issue. I, I do think that Stidham is probably going to get the first crack. And then if they draft somebody, that's a another player to consider. But I don't think we know who that player might be at this point. I'm curious to see if they add to their receiver core because as good as Julian Edelman is, the fact that they traded for Muhammad Sanu, they have Nikhil Harry and Jacoby Myers, that receiving core still didn't look great at the end of last year. It was a lot of the reason why Tom Brady left, I have to imagine. And I'm interested to see how they address that. The Patriots did sign Demir Bird away from the Cardinals. I think that news came out today or late yesterday. Um, we'll see if maybe he can deliver on some of the promise that he flashed in Arizona with Cliff Kingsbury. Uh, and I'm curious to see what the Patriots do at tight end because they still are looking at Matt Lacoste, Ryan Izzo, and Jacob Johnson at that position. I just don't really see the playmakers for them and roll that all up with the uncertainty at quarterback. And we could see a drastic fall off for that team, even with you know the mastermind Bill Belichick pulling the strings, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I know that a lot of people are floating the idea that maybe they just don't go quarterback, they tank this season, they go after Trevor Lawrence, you know, in the in the draft next season is kind of that gem of the 2021 class. I think it's probably way too premature to to say that. One because I think Belichick, I think in terms of his career is always going to be looking to win right now. I don't think he's really interested in a rebuild and and wanting to stick around for that. And two, I I, I agree with you. I think that uh with Stidham with uh, so, you know, a lot of these questions on offense that they, they may just say like, well, Jameis Winston or whoever it might be, might be that answer. Or they may just say, let's go to the draft now and develop someone this year and see what we have in a year. I just don't see them really waiting a full season, knowing going into the year that they're basically going to be a loser. That just doesn't seem like Patriots football that we know. Speaking of Trevor Lawrence, do you have an opinion on him? Because he seems to be a pretty polarizing player in the dynasty space. I, I see a lot of people saying that he's really overrated and some people who are saying he's the truth. What's your take on Lawrence for 2021? Personally, I think he came into the season as the very clear 2021 number one overall pick. You know, there was a ton of hype because of that freshman season. He didn't progress as well as everyone expected, but expectations were so high you know you think of guys like John Elway Andrew Luck these high-end prospects that came into college who 
just had no ceiling to what they could do, basically. That's what we kind of have with Trevor Lawrence, or had, I should say. And then Josh Fields, who was kind of his counterpart in that high school recruiting class, excelled with Ohio State as well. So I think it creates a lot more competition for him. I still think he is the best prospect in that class. I still think he's the quarterback that any NFL team would be happy to build around in any kind of scheme whatsoever. Now, is he going to be this generational uh, once in a lifetime quarterback. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not willing to go that far, but I do think he's a guy who definitely has the capability to do it. And I think his floor is high enough that no one's going to really regret drafting him. He won't be a Tim couch. He's more likely to end up in that higher stratosphere than, than a complete bust. So I think he should be confident that he's going to be a good player. Good stuff. Well, I think we're probably looking a little bit too far ahead with Trevor Lawrence. Let's talk <laughs> now about the incoming rookies. This will be the meat of this episode, and we're a little belated on talking about the combine results, but I do want to take your temperature on which measurables matter to you the most, uh, you know, in terms of these benchmarks or thresholds or intersections in stats that we want to see from players that are going to lead us to believe they'll find success or longevity in the NFL. What are you looking for out of the combine results Overall, there's always going to be certain measures that are just going to uh, outweigh others in terms of their significance. That doesn't mean that players can't defy those. Obviously, we've seen, you know, small running backs, small wide receivers. We've seen short quarterbacks, uh, you know, tiny tight ends, all these different things who have excelled despite what the numbers may say. But I, I think there are certain things that help kind of narrow the field when you're thinking about on that first pass, who are the guys that you feel more comfortable with than less comfortable in terms of quarterback, you know, a lot of those tests just don't really matter too much. I think some of the burst drills, so like the broad jump and the vertical can matter for running quarterbacks. It can be indicative of their ability to scramble, their ability to take that first step and gain a few yards uh, after the line of scrimmage. Um, So that can be important if you, are looking for that type of quarterback and a guy like Kyler Murray would be a good example or Lamar Jackson. Those are the types of guys, obviously that matters for, but we knew that about them just based upon how they played in college, right? We don't need the combine to tell us that, right? No, it's more just affirming it at that point. I think it's kind of those secondary scramblers. You think of Aaron Rodgers or Blake Bortles or uh, some of those guys who weren't necessarily big runners like Kyler or, or Lamar but have some escapability because those little components, those 300 yards and two or three touchdowns that adds to a, to a quarterback's bottom line and can really push them from a mid quarterback two to a back end quarterback one. What about the other positions? If you're looking at running back, what sort of measurables matter the most to you? How might some of the indicators help us figure out how a player might be best used in the NFL in terms of role or fit in a scheme? Um, what, what does the RB position look like to you coming out of the combine? Of all the measurables with, with running backs, I think the one that most uh, analytically focused analysts are going to look at is going to be that that size-speed combination. So what what weight do they come in at? What's their 40 time? Uh, you know, that 10-yard split. Those That's a big component because if you get a small running back who is slow, that's pretty much a death knell for most of those players. I mean, we see very, very few exceptions who come in on the low end of that spectrum and are able to get more than just a few touches and last very long in the NFL. Burst in general is, is going to always be important for running backs, whether they're uh, receiving backs, uh, whether they're power backs. I mean, that burst is always very important. 
and the three cones a good test of their agility and that that has been something that that can be important especially when you think about the jump cuts the uh the different moves they're going to make to create yards a lot of that comes from that agility uh from a wide receiver perspective uh you know a lot of studies have shown that that weight uh is, is a very important component uh the the large some of those larger receivers and then combining that again with some of the burst drills with some of the agility drills that really shows kind of who are those guys who could potentially rise to the top? And then from a tight end perspective, the the speed is always going to be a big component. Who's the guy who can get down the seam? Who's the guy who can do more than just, uh, we talked about Jason Witten, basically be a, a volume dependent uh, short yardage option because those are hard to predict outside of a few guys. And then with the three cone, the agility component helps both in terms of route running, things like that, but also helps from a blocking perspective, which is always going to keep them on the field. So the guy who can make those quick turns to, to, to seal off the edge, uh, those guys are going to stay on the field versus someone who is a little slow, who, you know, is a little lumbering, can't really make those moves that are needed in today's NFL. They don't tend to be on the field outside of some of those larger 12 personnel and other big packages. So, you know, it's always going to depend on the type of player. But at the end of the day, there are certain things that if they succeed in those areas, it just increases the probability that they're going to be successful in the NFL. That archetype tends to be more successful in the NFL. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Now, let's roll all this stuff up and talk about where you're at in terms of ranking these rookies for our upcoming rookie drafts. I want to recommend that the listeners check out your four-round rookie mock draft at 444.com. Yeah, yeah. I, I tapped my buddies at DLF to kind of help me out with this edition, and they were uh, gracious enough. All of them do rookie rankings over there, uh, so I definitely wanted to tap their their guys who are most in the know, and, and they really came through with a great draft. So looking at that draft and then comparing to your own rankings, I think will give the listeners a lot of insight, right? Because everybody's going to approach a rookie draft in a different way, depending upon how much they like these different players. Everyone's rankings are going to be a little different, right? So let's go through your top 12. And we did this with Nick Whalen on the last Dynasty-centric episode that I did. Uh, but I want to see where you're at. And up top, is it Jonathan Taylor or is it somebody else? Yeah, for me, it's Jonathan Taylor. It's really close between one and two for me. I'm still, you know, I, very much a 1A, 1B scenario. I had them that way before the combine. I don't necessarily think the combine did too much to dissuade me, but I think just getting a pulse of where, not just where fantasy analysts are, but also where NFL analysts are, it seems like Taylor's the most likely guy to uh, either be the first one picked or at least be the guy that people feel most confident will be a uh, major contributor to an NFL offense. So that for me kind of broke the tie. And he definitely did himself some some good favors by running a good 40-yard dash, by uh, having an overall solid combine, and, and really just no red flags uh, at all. So uh, he he's my number one with, with DeAndre Swift right behind him. I want to talk a little bit more about that 40 time he put up because Jonathan Taylor, despite already being one of the consensus top three players in this draft class, is being talked about as a, a riser at the position and a riser among rookies for a lot of people just based upon that combine performance that he had. Like you said, no red flags. But a lot of it specifically to me seems like it's tied to the 40 time, you know, specifically that he managed to confirm uh, or, or at least dissuade any worries that we might have had that he was 
not quite as fast as we needed him to be to to be that top overall running back prospect. And I'm wondering, do you think we might be overrating his 40 time just as a different differentiator from the other top running backs? Like you said, the DeAndre Swift is still really, really close. How much of that is due to the 40 time? And how much do you think that's affecting the overall market for him in Dynasty Fantasy Football? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I think for some it is it is maybe a little double counting, a little redundancy, right? However you want to yeah. to frame that. I do think there's a little bit of that because most people who do follow college football, who follow the recruiting process, who are really into this, whether it's Dynasty or Devi players, they knew that Jonathan Taylor had a track and field background. You, you watch any of his games at Wisconsin. I mean, you see him just run away from everybody. I mean, no one catches him from behind. Uh, so I think to your point, it kind of confirmed what we knew and may have surpassed it a little bit. I don't think most people expected a guy that size to quite go that fast. Uh, they would have been happy with anything under a four or five, but obviously breaking four, four is huge. But to your point, right? It, it definitely created the buzz that helps. And I think that combined with no medical red flags with uh, NFL teams coming away pretty smitten with him, all of that just kind of wraps up in a nice package. It makes it easy for people to push him ahead because most of the other guys on this list at least have one outstanding question, including Swift. So what's that question for you with Swift? Yeah, I mean, I think the big question with Swift is sustained production. It just wasn't there. That was a combination of the Georgia backfield. Yeah, they've had a lot of good players back there, uh, you know, including Nick Chubb. He's had some injuries. You know, his he only had really one full season as the starter. Um, so there's there's some questions there in terms of that sustained production. We always love to see the younger breakout age. We always love to see multiple seasons as a starter, multiple seasons of success. And he didn't quite have that. Uh, that said, I mean, we knew he was a great prospect. He came in as a as a high end guy when he did play early on in his freshman season. He was spectacular. So it's a small question, right? Which is why I say he's the one B to Taylor's one A. How much of a difference or discrepancy in draft capital would you have to see between Taylor and Swift for Swift to move ahead of him in your rankings? Like if Swift was drafted 10 picks ahead, would that do it? Would it have to be 20 picks? What's the difference for you where you would adjust your rankings? It's a great question. I think it might come down to which teams they land on more so for me than the, the draft capital, because I think they will get drafted relatively close to each other, barring barring something crazy. I think they'll, they'll be at least within 10 to 20 picks of each other in whichever direction that may be. But if, let's say, Swift ends up in, in Atlanta and Taylor ends up, you know, Philadelphia, let's say, with Miles Sanders, that would obviously be a little scarier. I don't think uh, Philadelphia would do that. But if, if it was something like that where we saw Taylor dealing with some significant competition or Swift for that matter, I think that would cause it to, to that gap to either widen or to change completely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that you're tying it more to the team situation specifically than the actual difference in where they're drafted. Um, all right, we spent enough time on the top two guys. Who's your number three? Yeah, number three for me is still Jerry Judy. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Uh, my wife's an Alabama alum, so I'm a little bit biased uh, in that regard. But I mean, there's a guy who's been an elite producer. He was a fantastic prospect. He confirmed his speed and everything else at the, at the combine. The only question I think that people have had is, you know, he's not necessarily been the, the most productive relative to the other options there, but there were a significant number of options at Alabama, uh, for him to contend against, uh, you know, he, he's 
remains the top receiver for me. I know some other people have it another way, but I, I really do think he's the most complete uh, receiver in this draft. And, and all those intangibles play in his favor as well, the route running and, and everything else. Uh, I mean, he's just a fantastic prospect. I do think it makes some sense, too. If you had Judy ranked number one pre-combine and he did well at the combine, not to adjust him at that point. At that, trust your initial evaluation. You know, they say if you're taking a multiple choice test and you have to guess, your first instinct is most often correct, things like that. I think that that can apply to fantasy analysis in some ways. Now, with a player like J.K. Dobbins, the running back who you have fourth overall, we didn't really get any confirmation because he wasn't participating in the combine. We have some missing information here. Are you still confident in Dobbins as a locked-in top three running back in this class, or are you just kind of leaving him here as a placeholder until we get more information from his pro day or, or whatever other information we need? Yeah, honestly, I'm terrified of this one. Uh, I, I like Dobbins as a prospect. I think he was super productive at Ohio State, but to your point, we're, we're missing a lot of information, and, and not just we're missing information. NFL teams are missing information, too. Right. I mean, I'm sure they would love to have more opportunities to spend time with him, more opportunities to see him work out, do drills, all these other things. And, it, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure with the current global situation if that's even a possibility. A lot of pro days have been canceled. Uh, so unless they come up with either a, a virtual option or, or something else, that may not even happen. So he could tumble down draft boards partially out of his own misfortune not participating in the combine and partially out of things completely out of his control uh, with everything going on and pro days getting canceled. So yeah, he could easily fall down this list uh, outside of the top. He could be number five or number six at running back. If, if NFL teams lose interest. Honestly, I was surprised to see him still ahead of CD lamb, but it's not like CD lamb is much farther. You have him next at number five. But I'm curious, does Lamb rank closer in value for you to number three, Judy, or to your number six player, who's also a wide receiver? Um, is there a tier break that Lamb lies on you know, one side of or the other? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have. I literally, in my top 200 rankings, have Judy Dobbins and Lamb 25, 26, and 27. So you can <laughs> tell how close I have them right now. Uh, that may be a bit of a cop-out. I feel like it is. But it just shows how how insanely talented this class is. I mean, DeAndre Swift is 19 and Taylor, or I'm sorry, Swift is 21 and Taylor's 19. So they're all clustered within about eight picks of each other in a startup draft, in my opinion. So we're really talking about a very thick top end of this draft. And, and Lamb, for me right now, brings up the, the tail end of it. He could easily jump Dobbins. I'm not sure if I'd have him jump Judy outside of uh, again, another kind of Swift Taylor landing spot type situation because I don't see Lamb or Judy falling out of the first round at all. I think they're going to be picked really close to each other. A few teams obviously have, have solved some wide receiver needs like the Cardinals recently, but uh, I, I yeah, Lamb. I, I'm a big fan. I really like him. I think he's a, a supremely talented receiver. I think his questions come around. Can he succeed with a, a non-Heisman caliber <laughs> quarterback, right? I mean, not no fault of his own, but he did well with the different guys he had. He clearly was in a fantastic offense. And Hollywood Brown kind of helped uh, show that an Oklahoma receiver could make that transition to the pros uh, under that system. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, where Lamb ends up and if he can, uh, you know, kind of mirror some of that success. What happens for you after that top five tier break? Who ranks number six for you? 
Yeah, so so it's it's T Higgins hanging on to to number six, and and I'm a huge fan of T Higgins. I love his production out of Clemson. Uh, I love the the size, speed, you know, just the whole profile. He he did end up having his pro day, so we did get a little more information there. And there's kind of conflicting reports of what that forty time was. Some people had it uh, in the low four fours, other people had it in the mid four fives. Uh, but I think regardless of what that is, it, it's still really good to potentially fantastic for a guy who's, you know, six foot three and 215 plus pounds. So I really do. I love Higgins. I think he's going to probably end up being a, a first at worst second round NFL pick. I'm happy with him right there at six right now with number seven, literally right behind him in my rankings. Well, let's talk about who you have at number seven. It's Henry Ruggs and he's a riser for you. Why is that? It's hard not to be impressed by what he did at the combine, not just the 40 yard dash. I think everyone knew that he was fast. You know, he broke 4.3. I think he ended up with a 4.2740. That part, I think most people knew he was going to be fast. So, so we weren't, it just confirmed it, kind of like what we talked about with Taylor. It was more some of the other drills with the, the vertical jump. I think he surpassed 40 inches in the vertical jump. He has enormous hands. I think they were 10 plus inches. I mean, he has just, all the physical tools and all the athleticism you could imagine. I mean, this is a guy who had a very specific role for Alabama. I mean, he was a field stretcher and and that worked well for a guy like Tua who likes to put the ball down the field and does a fantastic job placing it. Uh, So I think the questions with him are going to be more around, can he diversify the route tree? Can he deal with uh, more press coverage? Can he deal with some of the different schemes the NFL will throw at him? I think that's going to be his big question. And he may be, the number one guy for an NFL offense, and he hasn't been that yet. So that's another question for him. Yeah, Ruggs is one of the unicorns that came out of the combine, right? He couldn't quite beat John Ross's combine record in the 40-yard dash of 4.22, but he still scores a track, 4.27 seconds in the 40-yard dash. And you mentioned how he is that type of field stretcher. The, the issue that Nick Whalen brought up on the last Dynasty podcast I did was – was he actually getting those targets as frequently as he should have if he's such a great prospect? I think Ruggs is a fascinating inflection point between these amazing athletic measurables and lackluster statistical production at, in college, albeit in a crowded receiving core. I'm just I'm fascinated to see how NFL teams evaluate him. My guess is that someone's going to be willing to take that chance on him early in the first or second round. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a tough one for Ruggs because Ruggs, to your point, right, he's not a guy who gets targeted the way that some of the other players that we're talking about do. He only had 55 targets last year, which seems almost criminal for, for a guy who's as explosive as he is. And only seven of those were in the red zone. So, I mean, he wasn't a guy who was heavily featured, and that's, that gets back to can he be that number one guy. But, you know, he's also obviously super explosive, 35% of his uh, receptions went for 20 plus yards. I mean, he was a guy who basically scored one out of every five receptions that he had his last year. Uh, and he had almost 14 yards per target, which is pretty similar to what we saw with, with DK Metcalf. So at least from a efficiency standpoint, he's fantastic. It's just a question of does that efficiency hold up if we increase the volume? Who do you have at number eight? Yeah. So uh, for me, not quite a tear break for me because I do like LaVisca Chenault, uh, but, but he is tumbling a bit. I think a combination of uh, not performing at the combine as well as a, as an injury history that he's had to deal with. Um, it's, it's definitely red flags. I'm still probably higher on him than most. I'm sure there are some other people that uh, have Chanel probably towards the back half or even out of the first round at this point, but I love the production. I love his 
ability to create after the catch. He's, he's shown a ton of ability with broken tackles. Uh, and he played for a Colorado offense that was just absolutely abysmal and still was extremely productive. So for me, I'm still weighing those things enough for a guy who we don't have a complete athletic profile on to, to, to keep him there for the time being. And I think NFL teams are still big fans of his. So I, I don't think that his draft capital is going to be bad. Yeah, a lot of people are regarding Chenault as a bit of a faller after the combine because he couldn't complete all the drills due to injuries to his core and to his pubic bone. It doesn't help that he dealt with injuries even before the combine. Another concern is that in college, he was used kind of more as a gadget type player. I'm not going to say he was only a gadget player, but more targets around the line of scrimmage than other top wide receiver prospects. Uh, Per Scott Barrett at PFF, uh, he wrote a really good article about the wide receiver prospects pre-combine. Scott wrote that 65% of Chenault's career targets came on balls thrown short of the sticks, whereas Jerry Judy was at 48%, Lamb was at 42%, and T. Higgins was at 35%. So I think that's a concern with him too. Now Chenault is scheduled to miss four to six weeks after surgery on March 3rd. So while all these things are concerning, I think there is a world for fantasy in which this pushes Chenault far enough down rookie draft boards that he does become more of a long-term value, maybe for teams who might not need a year one contributor at wide receiver. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think they're fair criticisms and 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 things to point out, I guess I would I would say. For me, you know, this is a guy who last year had a 72% catch rate and still uh, averaged over three and a half yards more per catch than the rest of his teammates did. So this is a guy who... Uh, caught 72% of his balls. The rest of the team caught 60% of his balls, and he still took them further down the field on average. So for me, there tends to be that relationship between yards gained per reception relative to that catch rate or even yards per target. And and he surpasses that threshold in terms of that relationship. So I'm still bullish on him. I think we can't really ding him too much on on the way that Colorado schemed them because we saw the same thing with Kenny Galladay at Northern Illinois where they actually gave him more red zone rushes than they gave him red zone targets in the past game and we're talking about a guy who's you know obviously extremely successful in the NFL in that regard uh so yeah I mean you have to look past it a little bit sometimes and in this instance I, I see a lot of upside uh in terms of what he can do Sure, but you don't think that that high catch rate you're talking about was at least partially inflated by the fact that he was being targeted on shorter routes? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that's the case. But the fact that he created so much after the catch to still average, you know, 13 and a half yards per reception last year shows me that even if he gets used like that again, he's going to be less of a Jarvis Landry and more of an Anquan Bolden. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's move on. Who do you have at number nine in your rookie rankings? Yeah, so Jalen Rager's my number nine. Uh, you know, we talked about Chenault at Colorado and all the issues uh, he had from a quarterbacking and offense standpoint. Rager, you could mirror a lot of the same things. He had terrible quarterbacking there. Uh, there's a big reason why he had that fall off this year in his statistical output, and that's tied almost entirely to the the offensive situation he had to deal with. I think he had three, if not four, different quarterbacks throwing to him last year. And he, yeah, he did have a little bit of a stumble with the NFL Combine. I think he overinflated his speed by saying he was going to be the one to break uh, <laughs> John Ross's numbers. And yeah, he still had a respectable number, but uh, yeah, obviously after after pumping himself up that much, I, I don't think uh, I don't think people were very satisfied with that because he then did well in other parts of the Combine. He did he had a great vertical jump. You know, he measured out well. So I don't think that uh, I'm going to ding him too much for that because he's still 
ran a four four seven. It's not like he was a guy, you know, chugging along at four seven. Next up at ten and eleven, you have a couple running backs, Cam Akers and Clyde Edwards Hilaire. How did you break the tie between these two in this range of your rookie rankings? Yeah, it's super tough because Akers is in that Rieger Chenault, you know, terrible offense uh, victimhood. Uh, so, so it's a little hard to to take his stats at face value, to take his production at face value, because Florida State maybe had the worst offensive line in all of college football, especially run blocking. And with Clyde Edwards Hilaire, I'm a big fan. You know, saw him a lot with LSU watching SEC football. You know, he's a bowling ball kind of an MJD is is a comparison a lot of people like to make. I don't think he's quite there, but but similar in that regard in terms of that short, stocky type of player. Uh, what broke it for me, uh, you know, Akers was a huge prospect. He confirmed his athleticism at the combine. And, you know, when you take into context the offense he played around, he was actually a really, really efficient running back, all things said. So, so that's what kind of broke the tie. But I do have them extremely close in my top 200. So let's compare these two running backs to the guys we talked about earlier in your top 200. How far of a gap do you see right now, you know, pre-draft between Akers, Edwards, Hilaire, and the top three guys, uh, Dobbins, Swift, and Taylor? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's probably about two rounds of startup value for me between the top three and then the, the next two. And part of that has to do with I'm a little less confident that that Akers and Edwards, Hilaire are shoo-in call it top 60 picks the way that I feel about the top three. And so that for me uh, has me a little concerned and I could see someone seeing uh, either of those guys as less than a three down back, uh, which I feel most teams are more confident in those top three being uh, both great receiver and, and rushing options for an NFL offense. All right, let's get to number 12, close out the first round of a 12 team rookie draft. You have Justin Jefferson. He is crazy young, but my concern with him is that he profiled as a bit of a compiler, more so than other wide receiver prospects in college. Per that Scott Barrett piece I referenced earlier, and I'll link it in the show notes for the listeners, Jefferson only posted 2.64 yards per route run out of the slot, and he basically only ran out of the slot in 2019, whereas Jerry Judy, Tyler Johnson, for comparison, both posted numbers over three in that regard. Now, clearly you have Justin Jefferson ranked well behind Judy, uh, but you know you have him ahead of Tyler Johnson. I'm curious where you think Jefferson lies in the fantasy hive mind or the dynasty hive mind. Do you think he's a little underrated, a little overrated, properly rated? What's your take on his general value, not necessarily where you're ranking him? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, that most people probably have him anywhere from that late first to mid second range. I don't think, I don't think I'm going out on a limb, certainly with, uh, with where he's at right now. I think in our, our mock draft that, that I did with the DLF uh, writers, uh, Rob Willett drafted him at 111. So that's right in line kind of where I was thinking. Um, but but I can I, I certainly agree. I think there's a compiling component. And that's unfortunately the case with any uh, wide receiver who has a quarterback like Jefferson had, who was so productive the same way that I think we saw with some of the Alabama receivers uh, whether it was Jerry Judy or even Amari Cooper when Amari Cooper was doing as well as he did back then. But, you know, Justin Jefferson's also a guy who averaged almost 12 yards per target last year, which is a pretty significant number for a guy who only had about 17% of his receptions go for 20 plus yards, which means that one, he was catching a, a, a high percentage of his balls. He caught 84% of the targets thrown his way, which is Crazy. absolutely 
insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any, anytime anyone's over 80%, I mean, that's ridiculous. And he did it while averaging 14 yards per reception and nearly 12 yards per target. So that's nearly unprecedented. We don't see very many guys do that. Especially at his age. That's the other thing you got to factor in here right. above all else. It's just that that young breakout matters a lot with wide receivers. And I think yeah. that's why he might still be a little underrated in my mind. Like you have him at the end of the first. And I don't know how much higher he can climb relative to these other guys. But I think the draft capital, if an NFL team invests enough in Jefferson, we could see him jump ahead of some of these other guys in the first round, right? Yeah, I definitely think he could. And with the way the NFL plays now, uh, Jefferson being a primarily a slot receiver isn't as big of a uh, of a deal breaker as maybe it used to be. You look at all the NFL teams and how they've creatively used guys. You know, we can talk about Stephon Diggs, who just went to Buffalo, and 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 the way that he's been used over the years. Adam Thielen as well uh, in Minnesota. I mean, we've seen a ton of players who have been able to move themselves around the field and actually be a huge asset for NFL teams who want to really have defenses on their toes. And I think that's where Jefferson could be a value for an NFL team. And then in turn, be a higher drafted option and be a guy who could be more heavily featured. Let's move beyond the first round or your first round of rookies and into some other players of note out of the combine. Who are some risers and fallers for you at the running back position that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I mean, there was one clear riser in A.J. Dillon uh, at running back. I mean, you see any guy his size, you know, about 250 pounds running a, a sub 4 5 40 is uh, basically unheard of. I think Derrick Henry is about the only other guy, uh, you know, who comes close in terms of that size-speed combination. Uh, so I think that was a pretty impressive feat, uh, and that's certainly going to help him. I mean, there's still a ton of questions around his ability to catch passes, around his ability to be more of a weapon than just simply a power back. But but that breakaway speed may open the door up for at least NFL teams to to want to pay the draft capital to ask that question. Right. But the agility does seem to be there, too. It's not just the brute force and the speed because he posted a 7.193 cone. And that was better than Jonathan Taylor per Nick Whalen's post combine winners and losers piece. I'll also link that in the show notes, uh, you know, and Dylan weighs 21 more pounds than Taylor. It's crazy. Like it's not just the speed. It's, it's kind of everything. And, and that's, what's so wild about him. Yeah. And the, and the burst was insane. I mean, the guy had a 41 inch vertical jump, which was 96 percentile. I think he had a 96 or 97th percentile broad jump. I mean, he's an elite athlete and at that size, I mean, it is pretty impressive to see, you know, whether it's a guy like Derrick Henry, you want to compare him to, or even guys like Nick Chubb or David Johnson, these like larger running backs who are clear freak athletes. I mean, he kind of falls into that realm, at least athletically. Any other risers and fallers for you at running back? I mean, I would say the big faller was probably Zach Moss, a guy that some people had in the first round of their rookie drafts. He struggled in the 40. He was pretty lackluster across the board. I don't know how much is going to hurt him from an NFL draft pick standpoint. We've seen other running backs who've tested poorly in the past, but uh, certainly it's, it's, it's not going to be something that helps him uh, going forward. So I wouldn't be surprised if it if it causes him maybe to potentially fall out of day two. Yeah, that would be pretty crazy based upon the not not the hype, but the 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 expectation that we had for him. Absolutely. Heading into the combine. Let's move on to wide receiver and probably the biggest riser that I've seen touted is Denzel Mims. He posted a four point three eight forty time, a six point six six three cone. What do you think about Mims? Is he someone who might be able to crack that early second round, maybe even into the first round, depending upon where he gets drafted? Yeah, I, I really do think so. I mean, he's a guy that I had just outside the first round. He was my 13th ranked rookie. 
so not necessarily that far off right now. And and there are NFL teams that they're saying may even look at him in that first round. I think it's more likely it's probably the second round of the NFL draft. I'd be surprised if he goes in the first. Uh, but he was a productive receiver as well. I mean, there were some some of those similar things around Mims as Jefferson in terms of a compiler, and that's partially true. He did have a lot of targets. He had 111 targets last year and, and was a sub-60% catch rate. But, you know, he's a guy who was explosive in college. He had almost 30% of his receptions go for 20 plus yards. So that speed kind of confirms that ability to be an option down the field and not just simply be a result of a college offense scheming and, and providing him those opportunities to win with big plays. I think, I think it'll translate to the NFL. Who else is moving up or moving down for you at wide receiver? Yeah, I mean, I cheated a little bit. I said Chase Claypool's one guy who's a who's a winner, but but we don't even know if uh, teams are going to want to keep him at wide receiver. He may end up a tight end in the mold of a Darren Waller after his success last year. So that'll remain to be seen. But but similar story, right? Really fast, big guy. You had some success at Notre Dame, uh, so he's an interesting one. I think for most people, he's going to be in the second round of mock and and future rookie drafts. Um, Donovan Peoples-Jones probably has to be the other one. I mean, he showed a, a great vertical jump. He had a good 40-yard dash. The medicals passed pretty well, and that's been a big question for him in the past, and that has been a hindrance to his ability to contribute in college. So he's a guy that I think uh, could sneak into day two, maybe even into the second round if, if the right NFL team is interested uh, and be a guy who creeps up boards as well. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, he was a guy who was used on special teams as well. And that's often a good indicator of just a guy who's more athletic and higher talent than some of the other guys on his college team. Uh, so that's something else to keep in mind. Uh, any fallers at wide receiver? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Tyler Johnson before, and he's a guy who in a lot of cases was a first round uh, mock draft rookie pick and, and things before the combine. But he was another one who no showed the combine. And that that brought up a lot of questions, particularly around his speed. Is he hiding kind of the 40-yard dash time? Is he hiding maybe some of the agility drills? He's fallen into the second round, and even later in some cases, I've seen him even go in the third round of some uh, mock drafts right now. I don't know how NFL teams are going to view him, and I think that's another reason he has to fall is because we just don't have a window into that right now. And he was a guy kind of uh, you know a little up in the air, and the range of outcomes is pretty wide. And then another faller for me is Juwan Jennings. He, uh, the Tennessee wide receiver, ran really slow in the 40. Uh, I think he had a really bad vertical jump. I'm trying to remember what it was offhand, but I want to say it was under 30 inches. Uh, he's basically undraftable for NFL teams, I would imagine. If, if At best, he's going to be a late day three prospect, but there's just not a lot of upside there for him, unfortunately, because it seemed like he had a little momentum going into the combine uh, with his season last year. You mentioned Tyler Johnson, no showing the combine. Another player who did that was Brian Edwards. And I'm curious, do you have the same level of concerns with him not showing up as you do with Johnson? Like which one of those two guys are you more worried about after they skip the athletic testing? Yes, definitely Johnson for me. I mean, I, I have some concern with Edwards, but I don't feel like the the community, whether it's the, the dynasty draft community or it's uh, the NFL uh, draft analyst community, they don't seem to have the same issues with Edwards from an athletic perspective as they seem to have with Johnson. So missing it for Johnson seems to be a much bigger hit on his overall stock, both Dynasty and NFL. One other player who didn't participate was K.J. Hamler, the wide receiver out of Penn State. What's your take on him? Where do you stand on Hamler? Yeah, I mean, he has to be a faller in, to the extent of the you know height-weight ratio, and I think he had pretty small hands as well. 
So all that's going to definitely ding him. And, and certainly from an analytical standpoint, it, it doesn't play in his favor. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of his going in. I liked him fine, but I could easily see him sliding both in the NFL draft and in subsequent rookie drafts because it, I just don't know, unlike Jefferson, who may be a slot in the NFL, but has the capability to really move around the field. I don't think we can feel that way about a guy like KJ Hamler. He seems to need to get protected and teams are a little getting a little warier about taking those guys who they have to put in a specific role at the wide receiver position. They want to have that fluidity in their NFL offenses these days. Well, and those physical measurables, you talked about the hand size and just the general small size of Hamler. We saw that when he was on the field, but what that backs up is the drops that we saw him make routinely relative to other wide receivers in this class. And I think NFL teams do care about that stuff probably more than they need to. But in this case, it might be justified if he has those small hands, if these other indicators are pointing to him just not being quite as good at catching the ball that, that when it's thrown to him. So it'll be fascinating to see where he goes. Let's move off of running backs and wide receivers. Let's talk about your top three quarterbacks. And I know you have Tua Tunga Viola ahead of Joe Burrow on your board. And the medical reports for Tua out of the combine were a bit nebulous, but not necessarily discouraging. So maybe it should come as no surprise in how your rookie mock draft, that article we mentioned earlier, had him going ahead of Joe Burrow at pick 205. But I'm more curious in general with regards to the top quarterback prospects. In a two-quarterback or a super flex league, are you one to always take a quarterback if you have the 101 in those rookie drafts? Or could you potentially be swayed by the likes of a high-profile running back prospect like Jonathan Taylor or a wide receiver prospect like Jerry Judy or CeeDee Lamb? Like, where do you stand in Superflex leagues if you have that 101 pick? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've definitely have had drafts in the past, NFL drafts, that is, that have informed us uh, within our Superflex leagues to pivot away from quarterback at that top spot. You think of an easy one to think of is the EJ Manuel Geno Smith draft. <laughs> that was 2015, if I remember that right, where, where that definitely wasn't going to be the case even after, uh, even after Geno was what the 40th pick, I think he was. And, and Manuel was, I think it was top 20 pick or something like that. So, so there's definitely instances where that's the case. Now, in this case, no, I don't think I would pivot away from the quarterback position at the 101 or possibly the 102. I mean, we know that Joe Burrow is going to go to Cincinnati. I think we, we don't want to say we put that in stone, but it's pretty close. It would take a big, you know, it would take Taylor to Atlanta for me to kind of consider him as an option over Burrow. In this case, I, I love Tua's ceiling, his upside. I think he also has a really high floor, barring the, the injuries, of course. But I think right now the health seems to be going, you know, the, the recovery is going well. The, the overall health seems to be okay. I know he's had some little other injuries, but I don't really hold them against them because they, they seem to be unrelated. So I'm not too concerned about a, a some kind of lingering ongoing issue like a shoulder or, or knee that keeps getting hurt. But yeah, it's Tua for me, number one. Joe Burrow's number two. And part of the reason is he he only has really one season of success. He kind of struggled before that. Uh, and then Josh Herbert's third. And he's been my third before. He's my third after. But I think he closed the gap a bit with Joe Burrow compared to prior to the combine. Yeah, Herbert, for a lot of people, is being seen as a riser out of the combine just based on the athleticism that he showed. A 4.68 40-yard dash, 7.06 three-cone, and 123-inch broad jump. That kind of jumped off the page, and I'm worried that maybe now he might be a little bit overrated because of it. Like, there were enough question marks about him pre-combine that 
you we mentioned this at the top of the show or not at the top of the show at the top of this rookie segment that the measurables for quarterbacks at the combine don't really matter quite as much as people might want them to so if people are really bumping Justin Herbert up because of these measurables I, I think that that might be pumping him up too much if that makes sense uh, I want to ask you one more just kind of strategic super flex question for you regarding Tua and Burrow you have Tua first you have Burrow second and you seem pretty solid in that now let's say you had a dynasty team maybe you took over an orphan that just happened to be really quarterback needy and you kind of know that you need somebody who's going to be able to start for you in 2020 does the medical concern with Tua scare you enough to make you consider moving Burrow up in that specific sort of scenario? Like, would you draft Burrow 101 ahead of Tua if you had that sort of roster where maybe you only had two quarterbacks rostered who you knew had locked in starting roles? Does that question make sense? Yeah, no, I I totally hear what you're saying. It would be tough for me to put Burrow over Tua at this point. I think the medical piece would probably be the biggest one that would push me that way. You know, if I was taking over an orphan or had a bad team that that had an early pick, I don't think I would prioritize Burrow over Tua just simply because I probably am going to be a bad team again. Now, if I was a contender, let's say, with with one of those top picks, maybe due to a trade or, or something like that, and I was a quarterback away, I mean, I, I think that may be a scenario where you could make that consideration because at the end of the day, we're here to win championships. And if Burrow's starting really early and Tua potentially is sitting year one and you feel that you're just a quarterback away from a title, I could see that risk being worth it in that case. Because I don't think that Burrow is so far away from Tua in terms of talent and ability that you're going to uh, end up with a dud by picking Burrow. I think it's a, a higher you know, a, a more likely scenario where he ends up being a good to, to great quarterback than he is a bad quarterback. Yeah, the context does matter, right, in that scenario. In most cases, you are going to want Tua over Burrow, but you can envision a scenario where that's not the case. And I think that smart fantasy owners are going to do that with every pick of every draft, and that's the sort of thing you need to keep in mind. Any other notable outcomes for you at quarterback or tight end from the combine? Like, I'm not even sure we need to talk about the quote-unquote top rookie tight ends. Are you going to throw the same sort of shade at this year's tight end class as other fantasy pundits like uh, Nick Whalen did on the last fan or dynasty episode we did. Yeah. I mean, I think the difference with this year's class is we just don't have that like sexy top option that we've had almost every year for the last five or more years at this point. I mean, George Kittle was a weird exception because he wasn't the top option that year. I mean, he went later in the draft and everything, so we don't want to count him, but I'm saying, you know, we had guys like OJ Howard and, and Joku who obviously hasn't worked out to this point, but Evan Ingram and, you know, we've had all these first round tight ends, Hawkinson and Fant last year, and we just don't have that this year. So that's where I think kind of the sour grapes are kind of coming in. But I do think that there are some good options in this draft. I think there are some guys who are going to probably end up surprising. It's just that no one's going to even consider spending a first round rookie pick on a tight end this year like they did last year. Yeah, but there is going to come a point in every rookie draft, usually in the third round or the fourth round, where you look at the running back and wide receiver landscapes, you don't see anybody you like. And at that point, you might be willing to take a chance on a tight end which tight ends from the combine did elevate their draft stock in your mind? For me, the two that stood out was was Cole Komet and uh, Albert O, or I think it's pronounced Oweepunam, uh from Missouri. I mean, those two were the ones that stood out to me. Uh, Albert O, simply that that forty was incredible. Uh, sub four five forty at tight end is pretty insane, and he was a productive guy his freshman year, and then just kind of struggled a little bit later on in his career. But uh, again, expectations were pretty high things like that. But I think he'll be a day two guy. And Cole Komet for me is 
the most likely to be the the first tight end off the board in NFL drafts. I think that the combination of of his athleticism, his production, he's uh, capable of kind of being a good all around option for an NFL team um, versus a guy like Thaddeus Moss who skipped the combine or at least skipped parts of the combine, I should say, and and. Being Randy Moss's kid just probably isn't enough for him to to do very well. I mean, he's a slow guy. He's more of a blocker than anything. I, I don't even know if he's going to get drafted at this point. Uh, Mitchell Wilcox was the tight end who sadly got hit in the face by the football <laughs> during the uh, the, the catching drills. So, yeah, luck. very very tough luck there. Um, and then a quarterback who fell for me and and for most people was Jake Fromm. He looked terrible passing in in some of the drills that they had him do. He's not. A very athletic guy anyway so that really wasn't going to matter but I think a lot of NFL teams are starting to shy away a bit because I think they see a very limited player who's who's smart and probably will be a good backup but doesn't really have the starter potential or upside potential that you may want to take they were talking as a as a possible day two pick uh, and I just don't know if that's going to be the case anymore I'm really glad that you gave me the shortening of Albert O uh, I, I was dreading having to try to pronounce his last name because I'm not very good at those sort of pronunciations. But what makes that sub four five forty yard dash so impressive is that he's six five two hundred forty eight pounds. Like this guy is huge and he's fast, and that could catch some NFL teams' attention. I'm curious to see where he goes, and I'm wondering if if maybe we can shorten Albert O even further to Allo, and then we can get some sort of nickname, uh, you know, moisturizing your fantasy team sort of. Uh, <laughs> jokes in there i'll have to work on that we'll workshop that later george yeah yeah just soothing all those tight end burns you've had in the past oh and there are so many believe me yeah absolutely (laughs) all right man well uh, i really appreciate you taking the time to talk rookies and and some veterans at the top of the show uh on this episode why don't you let folks know where they can find you on social media and let them know what you got coming up at 444.com yeah, definitely. Uh, you find me at RotoHack on on Twitter. Uh, try to be somewhat active there. A uh, little bit more so these days, being a little more homebound than usual. But in terms of, of things you can find, uh, like we had talked about, you know, I just posted a, a four round rookie mock draft that I did with some of the guys at Dynasty League Football. I posted my post combine Dynasty rankings. I'm going to try to set up another post for kind of. Uh, free agency is now that's starting to settle a little bit. We still have a few names out there, so not quite ready to post those yet, but I'm trying to do them as they go. Uh, waiting to see where guys like Melvin Gordon and uh, Damus Winston go as of this recording. And then uh, have some other plans kind of pre-draft and obviously post-draft as, as things come along. So, yeah, really excited and, and I'm glad that uh, I get to share a lot of Dynasty uh, advice and, and, and different uh, pieces of information with, with everyone on the show. So thanks for having me, Greg. Yeah, it's been great. And I'll link to all the stuff that you've already written in the show notes. Listeners, if you want to see this stuff from George, check that out on there. Um, otherwise, thanks for coming on, George. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And, you know, hopefully uh, everyone has <laughs> enjoyed the episode as well as, uh, you know, taking, you know, I'm going to do my little PSA, take the proper precautions with with everything going on. I work for a company that, does disinfectants and other things. So I can, I can very much say that it's a very serious and, and, you know, scary thing, but just take the right precautions and everyone's going to be all right and can focus on their dynasty drafts. Yeah, for sure. Take care of yourselves, listeners. We'll get through this. And that does it for this installment of team app. Once again, I really appreciate you all taking the time to tune in. And if you like what you heard on this episode, please help us out with a positive rating and review on iTunes. Be sure to check out all the great stuff we have going on over at 444.com as well. We'll be cranking out content while we're all self-distancing at home. 
And consider subscribing to the site if you want to gain access to our award-winning rankings and tools. If you have any other feedback for the pod, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at GregSauce. Otherwise, I'll be back again early next week on a crossover pod with the great John Paulson to dive deeper into the impacts of NFL free agency. Until then, thank you for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast. When the chaperone crowned us the king and the queen I knew that we'd arrived at a unified scene And all those little lambs from my dreams Well, they were there too Cause it's one thing to start it with a positive jam And it's another thing to see it all through And we couldn't have even done this if it wasn't for you Thank <laughs> you.